Hello and welcome to this special audio commentary track for the film Life Force. My name is Michael Felsher, I'm a DVD producer and filmmaker, and I'm very pleased to be here today with the film's special makeup effects designer, Nick Maley. How are you doing, sir? I'm pretty good. I'm sitting here in the Caribbean having, um, uh, thinking about the pina colada I'm going to have this afternoon and uh, watching this movie that uh, probably has my best work in it, um, I, I suspect. You would say out of all the stuff you've done, you're, you're most proud of the, the work in Life Force? Well, no, I'm probably most proud of working on Yoda for Star Wars, but well, uh, I yeah. think my most complicated work is in here. Well, yeah, it's, it's nice to have a choice between your, your... Am I more proud of working on Yoda or Life Force? That's that's a pretty good thing to be able to look back in your career. <laughs> sure. How did you get started? Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got interested in doing makeup effects and, and, and just basically what were your creative inspirations? Yeah, well, basically my dad was an actor and I learned stage makeup when I was a kid. Um, I, he was teaching at drama school and I started about 13 helping him with some of the end of term classes and by the time I was 18 he got sick I took over his classes and was teaching at what's now Middlesex University in London and uh, lo and behold um, I, I, I knew I didn't want to teach but uh, I thought maybe I could use that as a lever to get me a union ticket to work in movies so I spent two years trying to persuade the guys who gave union tickets out that I must be some kind of whiz kid if I was 18 and teaching at college and fortunately they believed it and <laughs> gave me a ticket and then I spent another few years interfacing with different uh, with different people who could give me the work you know it's it's um, it's not an easy thing to get started in you have to try and just make the most of what opportunities you've got and just network and network and network until eventually you get enough work to make it uh, viable what what artists or what films or what media or any kind of uh, influences did you originally have who were the people who excited you creatively well, as a kid, I, I remember sitting under the table in my grandmother's uh, house watching Humphrey Bogart movies and, and black and whites that were kind of like that. And then science fiction kind of got me with with um, uh, with things like Quatermass and uh, I guess later on, to some extent, Doctor Who. Um, but uh, I, I, my dad would read me horror stories uh, when I was a kid, um, and uh, and I, I just we we just kind of had a, a it was a family that had a lot of interest in the arts and in entertainment, and it, it just sort of evolved from there. And I, I as as time went by, um, and I was working as a makeup artist, I started to look at things. Uh, that were groundbreaking in their day, like uh, the Apes from 2001: A Space Odyssey in the in the late 60s, mm -hmm. uh, and then later on prosthetic makeups uh, that really impressed me. And so, uh, having started out in doing really quite broad theatrical makeups, and then refined that to do glamour makeups, making pretty people look prettier, mm -hmm. I then started to sit and play in my garage uh, to try and make pretty people look pretty ugly and um, <laughs> uh, you know you you just experiment and get things wrong and 
hopefully you're critical enough of yourself that you get to improve and improve and improve. One of the critical things there for, for people that are starting out is not to do something and say, wow, look at that, I did that. What you've got to do is look at it and say, hmm, I did it, but how could I possibly make that better? And if you can keep on um, criticizing your own work enough to... Uh, for it to improve, then eventually you end up being the guy that everybody else is following instead of you chasing after somebody else. You know, we, I, I've spoken to a lot of makeup effects artists over the years, and all of them pretty much have the... Uh, none of them are ever satisfied fully with everything that anything that they've done. Actually, that's true of all movie makers, I think. You know, a movie is a compromise uh, as far as everybody's concerned. The, the, the producer knows that he could have made a better movie if he hadn't had to deal with that director and all those heads <laughs> of department that were a pain in the butt. And the, and the director knows that he could have done it better if he could have done everything himself. And the heads of department know that they could have made the movie so much better if they hadn't had to do it the way the director wanted it to. But, you know, ultimately, it's a, it's a compromise that doesn't satisfy anybody. But uh, hopefully... Um, the the audience is seeing the end product. They don't know what was in our head that we that we didn't get the way that we wanted it to. And hopefully, if you shoot for the stars, then you reach the moon close enough that uh, you impress people anyway. What were some of your early jobs in the in the business? What were the first things that you ended up doing that people could look back on? Uh, actually, I think half. Three quarters of the jobs that I did, people have forgotten it anyway. You know, the first movie I did was with, with uh, Charlton Heston, and it was a version of Shakespeare's uh, Julius Caesar. Mm. Uh, and um, I, I, that's one of those movies you're only ever going to find on DVD somewhere, because um, I, I think uh, otherwise it's um, it, it's got lost. And I, you know, I started like everybody else in the business, worrying about the crowd, um, running around, having uh, 400 English people that were supposed to, in the in the snow, uh, having trying to make them look like uh, a bunch of Roman Romans that were um, getting excited about watching Mark Antony run around in an arena or something, but. Uh, it, Movies are make believe, and and that's all part and parcel of the um, of the of the joy of it. You know, you just let your imagination run wild, and uh, and try to turn the uh, the Moroccan army into the English hundred and tenth lancers, <laughs> or, or or whatever else. You know, you just try to bend the truth so that when you look through that little window of your movie screen, that what you see. Um, makes sense and doesn't look like uh, some some actors in astronaut suits that are um, maybe sitting on camera dollies to make them look like they're floating around. Uh, it's um, it's all about trying to, to cast that illusion. So in this sequence in particular, as they're discovering the, the, the interior of the vampire ship, uh, of course, since this movie was made back in the mid-1980s, this is all practical effects work, uh, a huge set. Where were you filming? Was it L Street Studios you were filming at? Uh, we, yeah, we were at EMI and L Street when we did this. There are no digital effects in this at all. Um, everything is practical. Everything that you see was done 
realistically. Although there's a great marriage, I think, in this of uh, uh, of the opticals that John Dykstra did and the physical effects that John Gant did and the creature effects that, uh, that I was doing. I think that the way they all married together was, for its time, was, uh, was world class. This would be a good opportunity to discuss your interaction and who the other effects departments were on this film because, you, again, you, you point out that there's an immense degree of collaboration with the sort of the more optical effects, the visual effects work that Dykstra did, and then the, the, uh, the on-set work that you and John Gant were doing. What was the working relationship like between you three gentlemen? I, it was pretty good. I mean, I, I didn't see a lot of John, beca- John uh, Dykstra because most of his stuff was miniatures that were being done in another location. They, there was a, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact location that they were using, the, a famous um, m- s- uh, model of uh, London that, uh, that had... Um, uh, Lots of things. The whole of London set up there, and what they did was they uh, they added to that uh, the 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 model figures that they needed to blow up. Um, they built those specifically to put them in amongst the models that they weren't supposed to blow up. Um, and he was filming most of his stuff on location, uh, doing that. And uh, John Gant and I were in the studio. Um, for a long time, well, for, for a few weeks, I was preparing stuff, and then we were uh, trying to build things and film it at the same time. John and I uh, weren't exactly in each other's pockets, but we were, we were collaborating all the way down the line. And when you have things like uh, the later on, I'll, I'll be talking about... Um, when the space girl explodes, uh, we built all the figures, but we uh, then worked with John to to lay the explosives inside to to try and do that. And then, of course, uh, um, John Dykstra. After the event, we put some physical. Uh, when I say we, um, Tobe Hooper um, and Alan Hume then uh, added physical lighting that was going to uh, to be the marriage between the opticals and the practicals and then John Dykstra laid the opticals over this is a, a sequence that um, that's become quite uh, got a certain degree of notoriety I mean uh, M- Matil- naked Matilda May has been popular for a, a long time mm-hmm. and um, uh, and people are always always seem to be surprised when they discover the uh, the dummies that these uh, are dummies a lot of the time. Really? Um, yeah, these are fiberglass dummies that we painted up because you couldn't lock the actors inside these crystal coffins and load <laughs> them load them on the top of a pyramid of coffins. So when you get into the tight close-ups, then you're looking at the actors, and anything that we cut away from is uh, is life-size dummies that we built. All the that that shot, for example, is our life-size dummies. And similarly, um, when you see them, uh, when they've taken these crystals uh, coffins away, and they're in the ships, uh, uh, most of the time they are the the dummies that we made. What were the challenges of working on this set? Because I have to imagine 
you know, suspending all these guys from wires and having there's very, I mean, there's an enormous amount of very fluid camera work, so there had to be pretty much a 360 degree environment here. There couldn't be a lot of areas to hide things. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, they uh, uh, it takes a lot of time. I think Tobe uh, on on one of the making of Life Forces uh, uh, was talking about just how long it took to try and get everything set up, and we spent most of our time waiting to turn over but that's the nature of making movies people think that it's very uh, romantic and you're going to be you know hanging out with the stars all the time but what you're really doing is trying to keep out of the way and waiting for four hours until the camera turns over and catches that shot and then maybe you do it three or four times because it's not quite floating right uh, or, or something else and and then you come back again the wide shots particularly when you've got all of these guys uh, hanging there uh it, it takes time what we are, let's talk a little bit about uh, working with director toby hooper who had come off of a, a series of successful films starting with texas chainsaw massacre and all the way through poltergeist at that point and was doing what was at that time, or certainly Canon Pictures' largest budgeted film to date. What was uh, what was it like working with Toby, and what was his interaction like with the the British crew on the film? Actually, it was really good. Toby was one of the um, one of the directors that was easier to work with of all the people that I've worked with. In fact, sometimes he would come in and say, "So, what are we filming today?" Um, <laughs> there were. There were sections in the script. When I, when I read a, a, a movie script, um, rather than just interpreting what is, uh, you know, what is, uh, what the script says, um, I'll talk over the sequences first of all with the directors. You know, the 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 issue that one has is not just over. Uh, uh, trying to bring to life what's in the script, but also making sure that for the for the cost, you're getting the best amount of screen time. And so often I would talk about um, the effects that were there. The the screenwriters are trying to give the director and the movie makers some license to work. And uh, uh, in Dan O'Bannon's script, it's, there were several areas where it said, "Before our eyes, they crumbled to dust." You know, mm -hmm. we saw that on we saw that on page seventeen, and we saw that on on page twenty six, and we saw that on page forty four. But actually, once you've seen something crumble to dust the first time, um, it costs just as much to do it the second time. Uh, but everybody's already seen it, so it doesn't have the same screen impact. And so uh, there were a number of sequences that uh, that I devised and which we changed that are uh, in the movie, the, where you know originally the space girl didn't blow up. Um, uh, originally the um, the pathologist didn't come apart between the bars. Those were all sequences that I devised and set up. And and Tobe would just show up and say, "Okay, what are we doing? We had our own little." Um, second unit to, to to shoot those sequences and um, he would come down and direct the actors and I would direct the puppets um, usually on a on a radio mic um, which was probably quite amusing to watch um, and um, 
he was he was just I found him very uh, adaptable and very reasonable. Some directors will come in and they will insist on their vision, and even if you say to them, "Look, I'm I'm having real problems with this because this." I just don't think it's going to work. They will insist that you build it and prove that it doesn't work before they look at other things. Toe wasn't really like that at all. He mm -hmm. would say, well, how are we going to get the best value out of this? And, uh, and, and we adapted and we, and we went ahead with it. It was a very, very complicated uh, movie in terms mm -hmm. of creature effects because there was so much of it. Uh, and a lot of it we were building while we were still filming. So uh, we'd get the actors ready in the morning. They'd go on set. Some of my guys would be standing by, and then I would be out back making prosthetics and devising how we were going to film what was coming up in two weeks. Uh, and, uh, and when you have a director that um, or a producer that is being... Uh, difficult not supplying you with what you need or sending you off uh, on tangents that don't eventually end up anywhere that can be that can be a nightmare uh, Tobe was actually a, a very good experience to work with were the um, the representatives was anybody there from Canon Films Manam Golan Yorm Globus were they ever on the set uh, I don't remember seeing them on the set, but I wasn't on the set all the time. You know, mm -hmm. as I say, I was in the workshop a lot of the time, building stuff that was going to be seen uh, a, a little later. So I, I imagine they were some of the time, but um, I don't believe uh, that. Uh, I don't remember Golan being there at all. Uh, we had. Uh, um, other producers and production personnel that were. Um, that were really running the day-to-day -day, um, running of the, of the movie. So how much time did you have? Now, obviously, this a great deal of intricate effects in the film that you had to be responsible for. How much time did you have before the filming began uh, and to design and come up with even just rough ideas of what you were going to be doing on the film? Um, I... Uh, it's been a long time, so I'm not absolutely certain, but I think it was about four weeks. Hmm. Um, the uh, usually when you one of the problems when you're taking on any movie is that they already have a schedule uh, and they already know when they're going to film and how it's going to be, and you just have to get as much stuff as you can get done in that time. Consequently, it's not a forty hour job. You uh, and if you're ambitious, you're trying to create things that um, uh, the more you try to create, the you know the further uh, the longer you work. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, as a as a young um, head of department, trying to uh, prove that I was, uh, you know, I was the next guy that people should be taking notice of. Um, I would put everything that I could in. So it, it, so you'd be working sometimes 90 hours a week. That was um, at least 70, 70 to 90 hours a week. Oh, man. Uh, and so um, we, uh, we had a bit of time to prepare stuff. But uh, no, I remember exactly now. It was six weeks. I remember that because the first thing they wanted to film was the transformation sequence to be sure mm -hmm. that the movie was going to work. Right, right. Uh, this 
this sequence that we're looking at here, um, you know, we talked. I talked about Matilda May a, a little while ago. We had about five girls that came in that we tested for for this. Matilda had a, um, probably the most uh, dynamic, and uh, although you wouldn't think of it as a makeup effect, um, I went to some extent to try and make her look, her body and her face look absolutely perfect not a plastic doll mm -hmm. but blemish but completely blemishless and so um that that was um one of the one of the other sets of tests that we did uh, matilda i think didn't really like this makeup um it's kind of interesting there was one time when she was really upset i had one of my guys doing it on a you know, I, I I did the design and then had one of my guys doing it uh, every day after that. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think she thought that she looked ugly in this movie. Um, I, I, I can't tell you over the years how many people have told me how they, you know, how they have dreams about Matilda May from this <laughs> movie. Um, and... Um, I think the last thing that she looked was ugly, but you can see that uh, every uh, part of her is made to look uh, perfect because that's what fits in with the uh, with the with the with the theme of the movie. There is no, there are no uh, um, sort of natural human blemishes or anything anywhere on her body because we well, she looks too perfect. All of that kind of stuff out. Yeah, well, she's the whole idea is that she's created as a perfect image from uh, Carlson's mind, and so she has to be perfect, right? But it's one of those things that people will just look at in the movie and not even think about. Well, sometimes that's the best compliment a makeup effects creator can get is the stuff that you just take for granted that you later find out there was a lot of work that went into it. Yeah. Well, that's often the way. That same thing was true on Superman. We built 260 flying dummies and nobody knew they were there. 200? That many? Yeah. Wow. See, I would never have guessed that many at all, ever. Yeah. So now we're getting into the her what essentially is her method of consuming the, the essentially the life force of her victims and this is going to yep. be I'm sure your primary challenge on this film is how to how do you visualize that and how much well actually you have to start off by trying to figure out what is going to be shot for shot because although this was a 26 million dollar movie back in the days when 26 million was a lot of money right um, it uh, you still don't want to you know throw that cash away so when it says oh and he's, he's had the life sucked out of him how do we decide that we're going to see that you have to talk to the director specifically about what is going to be in the shot uh, and so uh, we to try and make the most of the budget we would we would break it down as a shot by shot piece and and say well you're only going to see this from the waist up so mm -hmm. we're only going to build the top half of it um that dummy that you just saw was an articulated dummy of uh of the guard uh, and we had several versions we had uh a plain, when I say an articulated dummy, I, 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 don't, I mean it's not a puppet that is animatable. It is literally just a, a articulated um, frame inside uh, the, the body 
that when you pick it up moves like a like a dead weight so when you lift it the head goes back and the arms go back and uh, uh, and if you tossed it off a building, it would fall like a, a real body rather than all the arms and things going the wrong way because of the articulated uh, armature that's inside it. Mm -hmm. Then when we needed to bring him back to life again, then we needed something else. This uh, sequence, there's a, there's a point at the end of this where she uh, goes through a window and walks out across the grass. And uh, although she is naked, the one thing that we had to do for that was um, was to uh, build soles for her feet. We literally took, uh, we made uh, rubber casts that that were glued onto the bottom of her feet so that she could walk out across the glass without cutting her feet. I imagine it had to be very difficult for Matilda to just navigate through so many of these scenes because she really i mean she is completely naked for 90 percent of her time on screen what You're right what, what did you observe about her in, in terms of how she dealt with that i mean it was it had to have been pretty difficult for her what was her interaction like with the crew and and with you guys in particular well, actually, you know, the scenes like the ones you're looking at now, I wasn't there for, so I can't honestly comment on that. She, you know, I would be, I'd be working on the stuff that we were gonna, uh, that we were gonna shoot later on, and uh, some of my staff would be there to look after her on set. Um, I, it must be difficult to be naked all the time, but they try to make that um, as private as possible by, you know, closing off the set and having no more people there than, than, than really have to be there. I, I, I know that there were some challenges for her because there were some times when it, she was clearly upset, and I wasn't sure uh, because I was only seeing part of that. I'm not sure whether that was just... Um, that she felt she wasn't making uh, enough of an impression. You know, all of us, we, we get these jobs. We're early on in our career. I think this was probably the first thing that Matilda had done. And she's done a lot of stuff since. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you're, you're trying so hard to make the most of your opportunity that when things don't seem to be going the right way, it can seem like a, a, a really big thing. Usually you you get around it and, and ten years later no one remembers, you know, what it was. This is the sequence where um, she is literally, you know, walking out across uh, uh, shards of broken plastic and various other things. Uh, and obviously we didn't want to cut her feet, so we, we gave her false souls. Something I wouldn't I wouldn't have even thought about that, but yeah, obviously she's completely naked, so you need to protect her whatever you, degree you can. Exactly. Did you have much interaction with any of the other actors from the film? Um, well, yeah, I had a lot of. I mean, we did a lot of uh, dummies of them, so we had to interact with all of them in terms of making the life casts and making the dummies. One of the major problems that we had was that we had six weeks in order to prepare for the transformation sequence, but they didn't cast the actors until 10 days before filming. Mm. So we had to, um, we had to build, actually, we modeled eight different um, shriveled uh, corpses 
uh, with different head shapes so that when it was finally cast, we just had to change the features a little bit and say that's the one that's closest, so that's going to be the dummy for this actor and that's going to be the dummy for that actor. Often people don't think about the practicalities of that, but it is... Um, you know, it, it is very tricky. Um, I did some, uh, directed the death of Falada, so I had some, uh, and, and obviously did the, the makeup that will come up for that mm -hmm. um, on Frank Finley. But I, I wasn't really, Peter First, for example, I didn't really have uh, much to do with him because uh, it was just a straight makeup and I just relied on my staff to get that done. Right. Well, to talk, he's um, sadly passed away, uh, but I was wondering, and especially with makeup effects artists, they work very closely with the director of photography on as to how these things are going to be lit, because that is almost 90% of the battle right there in making these effects look like they do in, in the final product. What was Alan Hume like to work with? I worked with Alan on a number of different uh, uh, movies. Generally speaking, I, I found him... Uh, to be good, a, a, a uh, cinematographer um, is always um, a critical person in the crew because uh, they are the ones that are going to control how what you build looks. If a cinematographer doesn't like you, he can like <laughs> things really badly and he can make you look really terrible. Um, so having a good relationship um, is is important. And I worked with uh, Alan on, on a version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame with Tony Hopkins that I was nominated for an Emmy for and uh, on, on a number of other um, pieces. And uh, we had a good working relationship. It's always difficult, though, when you have the, the stresses of... Uh, uh, of filming because usually people are waiting for the camera set up and the lighting set up so uh, you know there's a lot of pressure on the cinematographer to get everything done quicker and every one of these shots people don't think about it we just had three cuts there they're all independently lit you you, right. you don't put two cameras up and just photograph the two guys this shot we're looking at is a completely different lighting setup from when we cut back and we're looking at the other guys. So it all takes time. There's a lot of hurry up and wait on a film set. It's all hurry up and wait. That's the story of the, of, of the game. And people say, oh, it must have been exciting to be on set. And actually, the first three months, you're excited to be around those people that you've seen on TV. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but after three months, you, you're really desperate to... Um, to try and keep your, your brain active because you've got to stay out of the way while everyone is setting everything up. And then, but you've got to be there so that if they say um, neck or, or, or makeup or hair or whatever it is, um, that you're there within 15 seconds. If, you, you know, you can't be, you can't be uh, out the back having a, having a smoke or a, a conversation with somebody. Right, right. Who were the other members of your uh, effects team that you worked with? Who worked under you? Actually, on this particular movie, I had my biggest crew. I had 70 people. Um, How many? That, 70. Wow. Uh, that worked with me. And a lot of them went on to do uh, a, a, you know, a lot of other things. There were about four 
um, young makeup artists who hadn't done prosthetics uh, before, who um, who are the amongst the leading lights in uh, in England now. My my main assistant was Bob Keane, who uh, went oh, on sure. to went on to do Hellraiser and yeah. uh, other stuff. And when I got sick on Highlander, he took over that movie from me. Um, we uh, uh, there was uh, um, I'm just trying to pull these names out of my head. Um, we had, uh, um, uh, one girl who was our runner is the producer for Steven Spielberg now. Um, mm. we had, uh, Steve Norrington who, oh, who sure. was, Steve Norrington was, uh, uh, one of the juniors in our, in my crew went on to, uh, to direct Blade. Um, we had, uh, Danny Parker, um, who, uh, who, went on to do the um the version of Frankenstein with Robert De Niro and mm, okay. um a, a, a huge number of people on that crew that uh that that went on to do other things um Jean Bolte went and became famous at ILM um she was doing all the wigs for me <laughs> uh and so uh, there were lots you know there was lots and lots of it. The uh, we had to make dummies of all of these guys for these various shots, and um, it. Uh, of course, here you're you're seeing them live, but we had to um, uh, talk about bullet hits. I, uh, you know, doing bullet hits on naked people is a lot harder than doing it on clothed people. Well, and sure, yeah. uh, a lot of this stuff was um, was was cotton wads of um, blood co covered um, uh, cotton wool that was being um, propelled at them to uh, to try and uh, have the bloody blood appearing there in the in the simplest possible way. Sometimes the simplest things work, you know. There's no need in it being more complicated than it has to be. It's complicated enough. Um, as it is, we're going to start to get into some of the major um, creature effects as we go into uh, this sequence. The, the movie is kind of interesting. It's got some very different flavors to it. Um, you know, it starts off um, with a few things that are sort of intriguing with the uh, with the stuff in space, and then you've got this section which is all creature effects and then you mm -hmm. go off into a another section which is dramatic but otherwise this is the the main transformation sequence that we had to do the first day of filming to prove that it could be done and uh, it requires uh, four different uh, animatronic figures and uh, prosthetic makeups on uh, the actors that are intercut so that you see the um, the this this uh, the sequence of events in a believable fashion. This particular figure took 22 people to operate and three computers. Computers in those days were very you know simplistic. I think 286s or something like that and. But the head is uh, radio controlled, and that is uh, actually uh, being. Uh, we programmed the computers to uh, 
to give those performances. What the computer's really doing is it's recording what the puppeteers are doing so that we can just press the button and play it back when we like it. Um, as we get into this, there obviously you've had a makeup change on the pathologist, so you've got a dummy and a live actor. Now you've got two dummies, and the, f the dummies are, are changing shape and uh, getting smaller. Every time you cut away, we cut back to uh, a different version. So the dummy that we started out with, that was a shriveled husk this is is now turning into a normal human being until we at this shot get back to the actor again and we had to do part of that by filming the filming the whole thing backwards because in fact we were destroying the dummies that we made as we filmed them the the process of of making them transform like that required uh, the the destruction of the figures. So you'll see photographs of me um, um, directing the animatronics for that with four cameras because we didn't want a hair in the gate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were going to get one shot at that, so you couldn't afford to have you couldn't have you you couldn't have had a whole lot of backups for a lot of these things. Uh, no, we um, uh, we didn't uh, we we. The backups weren't really in the plan. We didn't have enough time for it. What do you suggest? And what's notable about this sequence in particular, and there's a couple of the others as well, this is being done under extremely harsh lighting. There's no, you know, shadows and darkness here. You're having to do this essentially under an operating theater's lights, which is, so you have to make sure everything looks unbelievably detailed. Uh, yeah, it's all got to be detailed, and it's all got to be um, it's all got to be right. And when you consider, for me, the biggest challenge was not knowing who was playing until ten days before, uh, so that we had to try and make uh, make make a completely animated figure without knowing what it was supposed to look like. Um, uh, but that was that was typical. We made we modelled all of these figures not knowing who who was going to play this part, for example, of this girl. She was with a dark-haired girl. Real good-looking bird, no. Didn't have a lot of clothes on, either. We thought they might be, well, you know. Yes. Well, did you see where they went, where the dark-haired girl went? No. No, we didn't. We angled on back to see if maybe we could, you know, see him doing something. That's when we found her. How long ago was that? Half an hour ago. Yeah, this lad. I wanted to go back a little bit just before you you got this film. You were you had a long association with Stuart Freeborn. I did. Who uh, I did sadly recently passed yeah. away. I was wondering if you could talk about your work with him and how you met him and what was what was the what was your uh, relationship like with him? Uh, Stu Freeborn was my uh, mentor. Uh, I saw the Apes for two thousand and one: A Space Odyssey. Uh, and I was a young uh, guy who was trying to break into movies, and I, I knew that Stu was going to get all the best jobs. Uh, this sequence, by the way, is one of the ones that I uh, that I redesigned. Um, instead of him crumbling to dust, um, we we wanted to see something different happening each time 
it, in the script it said, oh, before our eyes he crumbles to dust. So in this case, um, we designed it to be uh, a little different, as you're about mm -hmm. to see. Um, this involves the live actor and, uh, and a number of, of different dummies to make the shot work. Obviously, the, the makeup here that uh, makes you feel something's happening to him, and he drops out a shot, and the hand which, uh, and, the, and the dummy that takes us uh, through that part of the transformation. Uh, and then afterwards, we go into a, another figure altogether that, is, uh, that has been made up to be able to crumble and break up. So instead of just seeing him crumble to dust like the others, well, in this case, we're going to give him a poke and, and <laughs> watch him fall apart. Well, this is uh, always uh, a, a, a wonderful cliche of films like this. It's like, never poke a dead body because it's never really dead. Yeah, right. Well, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the principle was to really look at, at the effect and then say, okay, well, how are we going to make that work in the most cost-effective way uh, and and this next sequence that is coming up was one of my favorites which uh, was a sequence that I wrote into the script and directed um, uh, based upon things that we we'd already built uh, I really like the idea of getting a, a piece of a walking shriveled guy stuck between your teeth <laughs> um, it, it it was just so much nicer than than watching uh, the pathologist shrivel to dust after we just watched the guard shrivel to dust. So, uh, it, you know, those sense of um, variation. I like this sequence too. Um, this was uh, again in the script. It said she crumbles to dust, and I wanted to, to each one to be something entirely different. Uh, and so as we'd had one, we poked it with a stick and another one that fell apart between the bars. We said, well, what if this one, you know, explodes in the end? I really liked this animatronic dummy. It moved um, really well. And I, I liked the glamour of the hair and the nastiness of the body. It's just a nice um, uh, image for me. I felt that it it, it came alive well, even though we, uh, it took, uh, I think this one took about 16 or 18 operators to, um, to get this little shot. Uh, we ran cables out, all the cables run out under the floor. We actually built the whole set a foot off the ground to, to be able to do that. Yeah, because again, here we are in the harsh lighting of the operating room and there's, no, you can't, there's just nowhere to hide anything. No, and everything, all the, all the operating cables, all the performers are on the other side of the wall or under the table. And, of course, we, we, we just had a cut from one, um, one dummy, which was an animatronic dummy, to a static wax dummy filled with stuff that we could blow up. Um, what, did you uh, use to, what did you use to blow up the dummies? Uh, we used what's called cortex. It's uh, it's an explosive that looks like a fuse. You know, the dynamite has that little mm -hmm. thin fuse at the beginning. 
it's like that. And what you do is you put it all the way through the inside of the body uh, and you just pass the current through it and that that blows everything to bits. That that exactly was what I was talking about when I was talking about um, working with John Gant because the dummies we were making, but we, you know, the explosives and all of those things come from the practical effects um, guys. So uh, we made them, they... You know, laid in the um, worked with us to lay in the charges. Getting back to uh, Stu Freeborn, um, you know, Stu was the the guy who was at the peak of his career, and I was a guy who nobody knew, and so I could spend my time uh, pointlessly writing letters to people saying, "Give me a." a $25 million <laughs> job, or I, I could uh, I could harass Stu for two years uh, until he eventually said, I've got to get this guy off my back. I'll give him two days' work. Uh, and I knew that if I could impress him enough, then if I was carrying his bag, I would get all those good jobs too. And, uh, and so that's how I got involved in Star Wars. I carried Stu's bag, and I was one of the uh, guys... Uh, there were six of us that built the creatures for the Mos Eisley Cantina in the very oh, okay. first Star Wars movie. And uh, and then we went off and did Superman and a, and a job for Gene Roddenberry. And then after that, um, I came back to Star Wars, but by then I was one of the two senior techs. So it was Stu, his son Graham, and then myself. And and we built uh, Yoda and the Wampa and the Tauntaun and the Minak and the Ugnaughts. And it was through that process that people got to know, you know, the production people got to know me. When you when you start out, uh, like I said, Steve Dorrington started out as a, as a trainee with us. Uh, Every time you do a job, you have the opportunity to impress someone and, and make a step up the ladder and, and to interface with people and to network with people until you uh, your opportunities get better and, and better. Gene Bolte, who a lot of people... Um, I was quite surprised when she went off to join ILM and was involved in a number of um, documentaries for them that made her something of a, a celebrity at ILM when she had started um, with me just making the wigs for all of these dummies mm -hmm. that you see us blowing up. Uh, and so uh, it's all about taking your opportunity and making the most of it, not putting yourself in a box and saying, well, I'm a makeup artist, so all I can do is powder people's noses. You say, I'm a makeup artist, but I'd like to be able to make a false nose to powder. And, 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 and so it goes on uh, from there. And each job, you grow and grow and do more and more. These are the dummies mm -hmm. I was talking to you about earlier um, because uh, you don't want necessarily to have the, the main actors, all three of them lying in these coffins for hours and hours while they light the set and yeah, that would do be other things so it's only yeah, it's only at the points where, where they come back to life that you cut back to the actors Uh, yes, yeah, so I worked with Stu on those movies and then ultimately was able to um, to get enough of a reputation to start to do my own on, on uh, 
I did a, a job with uh, Tony Hopkins for The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and then that led on to Kroll, right. um, which was a re very happy movie for me, and then ultimately through Life Force and, and, and others. Uh, but Stu was a big influence on me, and it was a great shame to see that he popped his clogs. But he, um, you know, he was mm. 98 years old and had a pretty good he had a pretty good run at it. Yeah, Crawl was a, a film I wanted to talk about a little bit about because that came right before Life Force, and that was also another huge in scale production. I mean, that was uh, a, a large large scale yeah, fantasy it was, film. Yeah, it was massive. It was a it was actually. It was bigger. It was forty million, and this was mm. twenty-six. What were your challenges on that film in terms of? Because obviously that's a different aesthetic than what you're applying to this movie. But it's just in terms of the uh, the makeup effects and the designs. As 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 a filmmaker, you're a bit like an artist. Sometimes you know mm -hmm. I'm a painter as well, and people say, "Oh, you're very diverse." I say, "Well, you know what? If I'm going to be working on a movie." the aesthetic that you apply to a horror movie like this um, is going to be entirely different to what you apply to a romantic comedy. Uh, usually you've got a production designer who sets the tone for what the movie is going to be, and you have to adapt your talent to fit in with what the director has in mind. And, um, and so, yes, they're always going to be quite different. Uh, um, Krull was more of a fantasy film where we were trying to combine uh, a lot of the if the creatures to the sets that had been built. So I would go and talk to the production designer and look at the drawings of his sets before we modelled the the beast uh, because I wanted to try and get an echo of the the alien architecture in uh, in with you know all of that this i talked to you about the difficulties of not knowing mm -hmm. who was playing the parts we had built all of these dummies that you're seeing in this sequence here um we built them all to be shriveled dummies in the streets of london when uh when when we finally get later on when the vampires are running through london um and so once we knew who were playing these parts we were we all we could do was just choose articulated dummies that we already had uh, that looked as close <laughs> as possible to the actors to lay in as these individuals but uh, in fact I, I was never entirely happy with them because i i felt they were um they were designed to be background dummies in the middle of a big scene rather than something that you would focus on the way that we focus on them here um i, I would have liked to have done something a little more mm -hmm. detailed for it but uh you know other people look at the movies and they don't they they don't know what was in my mind or or they don't know how far i wanted something to go and usually people just uh, just accept that and say well look good to me yeah, the artist has his own personal demons that he has to fight off when watching his own work on screen. Yeah. On uh, going back to Kroll, uh, Kroll was a really, really happy movie because it was my first really big budget movie as a designer. And, uh, and there was so much stuff in there. They gave us six weeks in pre-production because the previous designer and they had had a difference of opinion and they asked me to take the movie over 
very late in the day. And, uh, and once again, we had, um, they wanted to shoot the hardest scene first to make sure that they weren't spending the money and, and then they couldn't get that scene done. So we had to storm the castle with all the slayers in the first days of mm. uh, filming. And uh, so that had, its, that had its own challenges, but I, I, I enjoyed the movie and we did some groundbreaking stuff there. Unfortunately, it was on that movie that uh, uh, the stuff that we filmed didn't, uh, the stuff that we built didn't necessarily mm. make it onto film. And it was that movie that made me determine that I would eventually direct my own sequences, which I started with this movie, Life Force, um, where, uh, where I had my own unit rather than me providing stuff that someone else then uh, took and, and, um, and interpreted. Because so often you build something mm -hmm. and you know what it can do and the person comes along, they're, they're running the camera, uh, the, 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 they're saying turn over, but they don't really understand you know, what something that's is true. capable of. And that's why I say I think my best work comes the best screen time uh, we got the most out of all the puppets i don't think i don't think there was anything the puppets could do that didn't end up in the movie other than a, a few sequences that um that we filmed that, that were cut mm -hmm. short in the movie uh, there was a, a a sequence later on that i'll talk to you about when falada dies that we extended that and i think it was so gory the 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 sensor wouldn't let them keep it in um, and some and some other things but other than that i think everything we built really got um got proper use in this movie so the the the, the dollars we spent in making the items all ended up on screen whereas so often you spend dollars you don't need to spend to build something that ultimately people don't get to see and that, that was the critical thing, the difference between Life Force and Krull for me, was that we built uh, a beast that could do huge amounts of things, but you never saw it on screen in the final film. Didn't you have a makeup on that film? I believe it was the, uh, the Widow of the Web makeup that, was, that held a record, yeah. a Guinness Book of World Records for a while. It, it was. It was the actually. It was the the longest makeup ever done on a woman. I said to my mother, I wasn't sure I wanted to be remembered to be one of the slowest <laughs> makeup artists that there had ever been. But <laughs> but it was nice to be in the Guinness Book of World Records for a while. Well, if I remember that makeup, it was an incredibly detailed one. So it was not like you were just slapping on a yeah. Simple it makeup. was. It, it was. Uh, it was twenty-two uh, mm. prosthetic pieces that. Um, that covered the hands and the face, and uh, it, I, it was. I, I was I was quite happy with it. I wasn't a hundred percent happy with it, but I was quite happy with it. The critics were a little unkind to Life Force yeah. when it came out. I think all of these uh, intimate scenes, um, you know, sex and vampires and outer space, was a little outside the box for 1983 was yeah, it when we made it I, it was released I, in 85 something like that yeah 
Yeah, right. And uh, and so I, I uh, they were they were really very critical. And uh, I I first saw the movie uh, in a press showing. Uh, so it was me and uh, two other crew members, head of department, and uh, and all the press that were actually giving the movie a a hard time. I think it was unfair in, in many ways because okay, it was kind of sexy. And I guess they thought that was um, uh, that was kind of sexploitive, but um, it was it had a unique feel, and it has a the whole movie with the with the shadows up the wall that you see there. It has a classic gothic um, sort of uh, flavor to it that I think is is very stylized that um, that was being overlooked by a lot of people. Well, it's interesting in that you're dealing with a film being shot that takes place in the UK, but it's being filmed by an American director. Uh, yet he brings a very uh, an old school sensibility to this. It was clear that he knew that he was going for a, a almost like a classic British horror atmosphere, even though he was clearly, you know, s- steeped in American filmmaking at the time. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, and when I when I watched the film, I, I, for me there were some things with the cuts. There were some of the shots that, some of the scenes that I um, devised that I felt he laboured on a little too long. I felt we uh, we 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 didn't need to labour on some of the the transformations quite so long because I felt it gave away a little bit how I'd made it work if I'd been editing it I would have cut it a bit shorter and then there were other sequences that I would have liked to have seen extended that were cut quite short um, but that's the nature of it you know like I said at the beginning uh, the the heads of department always know that they could have made the movie better if they hadn't had to deal with the director and the director knows that he could have done it better if he hadn't had all those um, <laughs> heads of department who told him why it was he couldn't do what he wanted to do so I want to go back a little bit on, on one uh, we're talking about a film like Life Force or The Crawl where there's a great deal of otherworldly fantastical creations and yet you're doing a, you did a, uh, a lot on, on the original Superman which was a film yes a fantasy film a comic book film but set very much in the real world uh, and not necessarily as, as, as fantasy oriented what was your job on that film and what were the challenges that were unique to that project? Well, like, uh, once again, you know, we're all freelance workers, so we're just pleased to be working. Um, on, um, uh, so we're going we're gonna to move from genre to genre um, as the jobs come along. Sometimes people uh, get known for doing something particular, like Tom Savini got well known for doing Friday the 13th. And oh, so sure. people, people only gave him all those kind of uh, gory horror uh, effects type uh, things to do and sometimes that can happen but for most of us particularly when we're coming up um, we just want to work a lot and uh, Stu uh, had, right after we did the first uh, Star Wars uh, Stuart, Stuart Freeborn had been asked to do Superman and I was lucky enough to be you know the the there was a basically four of us that built all the dummies and the other things for that. It, it was a learning process for me because it taught me, having spent a year making dummies that nobody noticed, mm-hmm. that if I wanted to get 
the next job, I needed to do work that people could physically see and say, how did they do that? Because we built uh, little models of Superman that were 12 inches long that had mechanical flowing capes to fly over uh, model cities. Uh, we built uh, um, half-size versions of Superman that uh, glowed when they uh, when you, when we pulled a, an optical um, a physical optical effect on them that made them turn from looking like the normal Superman spinning started to glow as they uh, uh, as it absorbed the atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. um, we we had even something simple like little boys going over Niagara Falls. You know, it's actually considered to be very bad form to put an eleven-year-old boy in a canoe and push him over Niagara Falls. <laughs> um, and uh, if he doesn't do it well, it's very hard to get another 11-year-old to do <laughs> yeah. it again. So you, uh, you have to... You don't to, have an inexhaustible supply of them, no. No. So what you need is an inexhaustible supply of, of dummies of little boys. And then uh, Superman's going to go down and, and, and pick him up. This is not at a time when we have all the digital technology that you have today. And you can't fly Chris Reeves from a helicopter over Niagara Falls... <laughs> to go down and try and catch a little boy who just came off Niagara Falls in a canoe. So you've got uh, figures that you've, life-size figures that you're firing out of cannons. <laughs> I, I've often wondered what happened to all those dummies as they floated down the river. They probably ended up in somebody's back garden in Canada somewhere. Well, I guess, um, yeah, I guess uh, there's no way to recover. <laughs> and, I mean, once they're gone, they're gone. You're not going to be able to track gone them. Is I think gone is gone, yes, right. So we, we, and in the same way, if you have a cat that Superman is going to rescue from a tree, um, it's, it's not acceptable to staple the cat to the tree <laughs> while you swing a guy on wires backwards and forwards to pick it up. Uh, and so we, uh, we had to uh, build a cat. Uh, all of these things were things that nobody noticed. When Superman is standing outside the ice fortress, there's a polar bear swimming through the through the water next to him. You can't let a polar bear loose next to your <laughs> no. main actor. They, the insurance company don't like it. No. And so, yeah, you have to build the polar bear, all of which nobody noticed. Which, again, is, a, is a, an enormous compliment to your skills as, a, as an artist that... No one went, hey, that looks phony. Well, I, obviously, it wasn't just my skills. It was Stu's skills sure, and yeah. his wife, Kay, and his son, um, uh, Graham. Uh, but, yes, it was. They, they were basically the four of us. And I would do the makeup on the supervillains in the morning and go work on polar bears and other stuff in the afternoon. Now, were you... That actually brings up an interesting point, since Superman 1 and 2 were largely originally supposed to be filmed pretty much at the same time together under uh, Richard Donner's direction. Were you called back when they restarted Superman 2 up again with Richard Lester? In fact, I'd already moved on by that point um, and uh, was doing other jobs. Um, uh, but uh, but Stu uh, was called back. Oh, okay. Uh, the what we did when we were filming the first Superman was we filmed half of Superman two. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to film all of it, but the movie went well over budget, 
and they decided that rather than uh, completing both of them, they needed to cut back, finish the first one, get some of the money, and then go back and finish the other. And I don't know whether they were upset with Dick Donner over the fact that they went over budget or whether he just wasn't available when they came to uh, to shoot the rest of it. But... Um, uh, you know, but they changed directors as well. Personally, Dick Donner's a great guy to work with, and uh, he um, uh, he was just a, every you know the crew loves him, and he mm. was just one of the guys, really nice guy to work with. And then yeah, when you were mentioning uh, working with Yoda, I mean, you talk about uh, a, a pup. I mean, that that puppet still holds up today. When you watch the movie, no CGI really could beat what you guys did as far as the way that that puppet was looked and filmed and, and, and made so real in, in Empire Strikes Back. I mean, how was that experience like for you? Uh, that was really a turning point for me. Um, first and foremost, uh, it was great to work with Stu on uh, the, the whole concepts of, of doing stuff that no one had done before. Um, one of the greatest things that, that, for me, one of the greatest parts of that experience was um, was really learning how to think and how to look at problems sideways and not not to take the obvious path. And those years that I uh, that you know that I helped him and I assisted him, you know, really helped my my um, brain develop in in problem solving and in in developing concepts. Uh, that later uh, I used um, for for movies like Krull and uh, those other things. The um, the thing with um, Yoda was that you couldn't make one puppet that did everything. And where Stu was working on the close-up puppet, um, I I was working on uh, a walking version and uh, working with radio control tech on a radio controlled version. And that ultimately led me to be involved in a in a third, uh, in a second puppet version. And so, as as all of that was going on, it was really very rewarding to to be able to make something like that and then watch it on screen and see how wonderfully Frank Oz brought it to life. Because it doesn't matter how great something I build is if it's not brought to life properly or if it's not filmed properly. Uh, and you don't, you know, get that maximum impact from what you built. Then you've actually wasted your time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it doesn't. I would, I would often later on have conversations with accountants and producers about budgets, and I'd say, just, just remind me, who was it that won the Oscar for the best budget last year? Um, <laughs> Because uh, you can't have a film where you have the little subtitle comes up on the bottom of the screen that says, I know these effects aren't very good, but they didn't give us enough time and we didn't have enough money. It's either it works on screen or it, or it doesn't. And so to work on something like Empire Strikes Back, which had so much more money than uh, the original Star Wars movie had, and to be able to take the time to really see something... Uh, develop something that no one had seen before and worked with a lot of very, very talented uh, people on that too. Wendy Midner, who who was a lady who came from the Muppets who was uh, building Miss Piggy and she worked mm -hmm. on uh, on Yoda's 
body and was involved with the uh, with the ideas for making his ears move and uh, uh, and Ron Hone who did the uh, the uh, the radio controlled um, mechanism uh, you know you you every time you work with someone like that you learn something and uh, and you you end up growing as an individual uh, a little bit by a little bit by a little bit until uh, Suddenly, you're the guy that's um, that's ready to do to head the next movie with your crew of seventy people making life force. <laughs> you did. Um, you're credited. I'm just curious about what your involvement was on uh, Clash of the Titans. Actually, Clash of the Titans was a little job that I moonlighted um, while we were doing Empire Strikes Back because oh. I was making all the foam pieces on that. So all the Part of my job was to run all the um, all the foam to make Yoda skins and the skins for the Wampa and the ton- uh, actually not the not the Tonton the Tonton was a big piece and someone else uh, ran that guy called Tom McLaughlin who worked for the Muppets uh, but um, but to do I was running the foam pieces and my friend Colin Arthur was doing Clash of the Titans and uh where ray uh, harryhausen was making the um, the stop motion version mm-hmm. uh they were intercutting with actors that had prosthetics on so calibos right. uh, was uh, the character that every time you cut into that fight sequence and saw a close up well that was the actor and my friend colin arthur that uh that I worked with on that and Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger and, uh, and a couple of other jobs, um, asked me if I would foam the pieces up for him. He modeled them and I just uh, made the pieces. So I was a, I was a prosthetics consultant uh, on that. And then he, um, he applied them. You, you know, you, you work on a lot of different movies and some movies you're doing just a little something and on other movies you're doing... Uh, a, a, a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, you know, the, the, when you read the list, uh, you, the, the credits all look the same, but the not all jobs are equal. When you were talking about working on larger budgeted projects with a bigger crew, and how at the end of the day it all really just matters on what gets up on screen, do you think there's any truth to the matter that sometimes it's not a matter of how much money you have? but the creativity of the people you're working with, because sometimes it's not a matter of throwing money at it. It's a matter of what's the most creative solution we can arrive at to make this work. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of movies I think that prove that point. Um, It's all, it's all down to, uh, and, and, and a movie, uh, a movie is a very difficult uh, combination. When you first look at a script, you can read a script and say, this is going to be good. But if you've got the wrong people playing the parts or, or or actors that are a little over the top or you end up with uh, with some element in there that, that you know, the director cuts it a little slow or, or something else, it changes the whole nature of the film mm-hmm. uh, and, and something that... Uh, uh, that, that that could be pasty and exciting becomes slow and boring uh, or, or 
are you just all the all the characters that have been cast just don't appeal to you? There are so many individual elements that go into a move into a movie, like putting elements into a stew mm-hmm. that you just need the wrong piece of spice to go in for it not to be so flavoursome. And you say, mm, I don't know, I didn't really like it. And right. it, it can have it can have great stuff in it. I think a I think a really good example of that uh, was was Catwoman, which got slated by a lot of people and yet had some really good performances in it, had some great uh, designs. I thought Halle Berry was great. But when we got to that really slinky digital uh, uh, Catwoman cartoon that was wandering around on the roof, it Mm -hmm. lost everybody and suddenly... People talk about that movie like it was a, a big flop, but if you if you take the take the main uh, um, productions uh, content, it's actually well put together and it's 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 well directed and it's well performed. It's it's unfortunate, but it can take just the slightest thing to spoil a movie. One thing I wanted to bring up, and you bringing up that brought it to mind was. I mean, you existed in, in, in your heyday during the, the time where prosthetic effects were, I mean, you guys were the rock stars of the field. I mean, Tom Savini's talked mm-hmm. about that, where you guys were at the top of your game and everything was being done that couldn't be done with optical effects later was being done on set. Now it's the age of CGI and CGI is being used more and more and more and sometimes in areas where it necessarily shouldn't be what what do you what's your take on on the use of CGI in films today and especially in its relationship to sort of overtaking a lot of the prosthetic makeup effects work um i i think that the best movies that uh movie effects that we've seen really came out in the 90s when uh, we had movies like terminator mm-hmm especially Terminator 2, where you saw things happen that really couldn't physically happen, where things were enhanced in a way that we couldn't make them work physically, and they, but they were based in practical effects. Uh, I think that was so much better than us just saying, oh, well, we can do that with a computer. Uh, and then we end up with, the, with masses and masses. Like the, the, the street scenes that are going to come up on this mm-hmm. today, they'd say, oh, we're not going to put 170 zombies in the streets. We'll just, uh, you know, we'll just shoot 10 of them and then multiply them in a computer and end up with uh, so many more uh, uh, running around. But by the, when you put them in digitally, they don't move the same. They don't interact the same. They don't have that same gravity or... For me, I, I think um, I was pleased when they when they went back to physical effects for Pirates of the Caribbean. I thought Davy Jones, which was a, uh, a you know a physical makeup that that was then digitally enhanced, mm-hmm. was absolutely the perfect marriage. I, I just thought it was brilliant. Yeah, and you look. I at- I don't I don't like uh, digital characters uh, where where you, I hate to name Jar Jar Binks, but uh, <laughs> but where okay. you <laughs> but where you have uh, characters that where you replace uh, you know entirely, I think it's much better if you can take something and then digitally adjust it that makes it 
neither one thing or another. This this sequence this sequence that we're coming up to now, although it's not a um, a physical effect, it's not something I really had anything to do with. It's kind of a, a an interesting piece. It's a spin-off, uh, partly from what Tobe did on uh, Poltergeist, when uh, they had a lot of floating figures that was in the room. But it's interesting to figure out how uh, this was done. You're going to notice that uh, as this scene progresses, the chandelier behind him is going to start to sway around as as the scene builds. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, all kinds of things in the room start to move. And it's proportionate. Uh, obviously, you could play around with that digitally today, but I don't think that anything would be as effective as how they actually did this. And they actually built the whole set uh, so that the set and the camera is revolving on a turntable. Mm. And uh, items that are hung from the ceiling are, that appear to be flying around are actually static. And the camera and the set and all the actors are spinning. Mm. Uh, and it's it's uh, it's very effective, and uh, again something you would never you would never really uh, think of um, as they as the as the scene starts to build, the set starts to move slowly, uh, and everything starts to move and look just a little strange. It's going to start about now, uh, and then as you get into it, it happens. More and more. There you go. There's the beginnings of the of the chandelier mm -hmm. spinning. It looks like the chandelier is moving, but actually, it's the whole of the set that's moving. Mm. Um, and uh, once the whole scene takes off, uh, and you see all of these items flying around in the room, uh, I think it's really very effective as a practical effect. Well, that's when, you know, the, the phrase old school comes to mind. You just do whatever you can in camera and, you know, it just, yeah. in the end, it's just as effective as anything that you can do with a computer. As this uh, became, as the scene builds here, um, you've got the marriage of different effects. The flashing lights were done practically on set to marry the optical that you see floating around Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, you know, with the lighting in the in the set, and so you've got things that are hanging. That you've got a, a, um, a air cannon that is firing paper and uh, various other things around the room, and you've got the room that is spinning. It's just a combination of things that makes you go, "Wow, what was that?" And and uh, and then intercut. All these, all these different effects are intercut to make that special. Today, people look at things and they, you see a scene like that, it would all be digital, and people go out of the cinema and say, yeah, well, they did it on a computer. Mm -hmm. End of story, right? It, it, I think it's lost, it, it's stolen a lot of the magic of the movies uh, in, in many ways. It's harder to impress people these days. And, and I don't believe that it's that much cheaper. You look at how many people were involved at the end. You know, this this is a $25 million uh, movie. And um, what did Lord of the Rings cost? 
Um, I think that was relatively cheap. You've got movies that are running in the 200s of millions. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's hard to say, oh, well, it was really cheap because we did it digitally. You know, that's been often the excuse that people say, oh, well, yes, we can do that now. It, we couldn't afford to do it before. I think where digital really has its uh, its its strength is in trying to um, set planetscapes and set uh, scenes that open up the scope of a scene that you couldn't physically create. Right. Uh, okay, you go out to the... You, you can go out to the desert and film the actor standing in front of the desert. But if you then digitally enhance it by adding things in the distance and flying ships and, and armies walking across the desert, those kinds of marriages work. Mm -hmm. uh, what doesn't work for me is when it all becomes a cartoon. This sequence that's coming up uh, has dummies of Patrick Stewart um, and uh, the, the Home Secretary. Uh, this was a full animatronic figure that had all the expression that you would expect uh, from, uh, from an actor, but also allowed all his body fluids to flow out through his eyes and his ears and his mouth. Uh, and uh, Tobe cut this so that we went straight to the scream. It's going to come up in a moment. Uh, whereas um, when I filmed it, I filmed it really to have him just waking up gently and then having this really manic look on his face before it happened. I, I, this was one of the sequences I would have liked to have seen extended a little bit rather than this sudden cut that is, uh, that is going to come up in a moment. Um, but it's still quite an effective uh, sequence. It, it goes on through a whole series of, of different dummies and figures to form into uh, Matilda May made out of blood. And I'll, I'll talk through some of the uh, elements as we go through it. it uh, it's one of the items that uh, I felt was one of the most uh, inventive in the movie. And I have to say that when I read the script and it talked about the body fluids running across the floor and forming into uh, this girl, I couldn't imagine how I was going to make it work. But uh, it, it came out pretty well. Well, just strictly speaking for me, this sequence startled the hell out of me when I first saw this. And it's always the, it's the sequence that I remember the most from this movie just because it stands in such stark contrast to the rest of the picture because even though it's a vampire movie, there's not a lot of blood in this movie. And also, you know, there's uh, you look at lots of different movies, there's not... Uh, this is a scene like nothing you saw in any other movie. No. Whereas so often in a vampire movie, you have a, a, something that you've already seen. These uh, dummies that you're seeing are animatronic... Uh, but they are angled so that the fluids fall with gravity, but we've turned the camera on its side so it looks like it's all going sideways. And we intercut it with a, um, a polystyrene uh, uh, form that uh, is spinning. 
that figure that you just saw in the middle there was a was an animated blob and then we had uh, that changed shape uh, and formed up into a body uh, and then we had the cut of the face forming then we have Matilda May then we have a dummy that goes down and turns into the blood that runs out across the floor um, trying to analyze a script you sit you read the sequence and you sit down with a piece of paper and try to draw out exactly shot for shot what it is you're going to see that you're going to allow you to create this illusion because after all that's what it is dick smith who's a great great uh, makeup artist in the states mm -hmm. Uh, you call this comp company Makeup Illusions, I think. And, and in many ways, that's, that's very much uh, what we're doing. We're trying to make the audience think they saw something that they didn't really see by cutting little pieces together that, that, uh, that go the other way. And so the, the, the job of the creature effects um, designer is in part to sit there and look at how each of those elements, each of those shots are going to be needed in, in order to, to piece those bits together. So anyway, it was one of the sequences that I felt was the most original and, uh, and, um, and that I liked. I would, I would have liked to have seen that extended a little bit and maybe the, the, uh, the pathologist transformation cut a little tighter, but, uh, you know, it was Tove's picture. <laughs> he was happy with it. <laughs> hey, we're back to dummies again. Um, <laughs> you know, these kinds of sequences, obviously, where you've got three naked actors um, lying around in the set while things are being done, you have to be uh, have to be dummies until we get to him breaking the glass and uh, her interacting with him. These uh, dummies have, as I said, a lot of notoriety. I'm about to um, put some stuff on Facebook, I think, where I show the pictures of uh, how we uh, how we uh, artworked it to try and make it look so believable because mm -hmm. the, the dummies were just big lumps of fiberglass. How much storyboarding was involved in a lot of the sequences that you worked on? I like to storyboard my sequences so I know what I'm building, but generally uh, you don't storyboard a whole movie. Um, even when we worked on uh, Star Wars, uh, they would storyboard lots and lots and lots of storyboards, but they were all the optical sequences that allowed them to figure out how big the stars were in comparison with how big the ships were in comparison with how big the actors were you know you need you need something that tells the people making the individual elements um how uh, you know how they interact with each other for me i'm i'm just trying to make a, a sequence work and so and trying to do it on a budget and so you don't want to have to build you could imagine all kinds of things i know other people who who do the same job and they just overbuild everything so that no matter what happens, you automatically, uh, whatever they've built, will be able to do it. But that's actually also kind of soul-destroying soul when you do all of that and, and you don't uh, 
you don't actually see it on screen. Here's some of John Dykstra's um, best uh, opticals here. These are the miniatures that we were talking about mm -hmm. that, they, uh, that they built and uh, blew up. This, uh, this sequence with all of these uh, shriveled guys uh, was something that we did over a five-night period. And uh, we had six makeup artists who did 170 vampires. And wow. other, than, other than myself, they were all novices. Um, by novices, I don't mean that in an unkind way. They were, they were talented young artists, but they hadn't um, been doing prosthetics before. That's and the a, reason that's I... A, that's a hell of a way to get them indoctrinated into the business, yeah, doing 170 vampires. I, I did it that way for a particular reason, because I didn't want the, to bring in makeup artists who were used to doing things in a particular way and who would mm -hmm. say, but Nick, what you're doing isn't the way we would normally do it. Uh, I wanted to be able to build all of these individual characters, but I wanted to be able to uh, reuse the prosthetic makeups. And now that 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 is a is a bizarre thing, particularly at this point in time, because the prosthetic makeup is glued to the actor's face, and at the end of the day, right. it's completely destroyed. Uh, what I what I did here was something that hadn't been done up until that time. I don't know whether other people have done it since. But what I did was I made pieces that would be foreheads and bits of skull and mouth pieces and bits of cheek and bits of flesh. And we made all of these prosthetic pieces and put them out in bins. So there was just a huge amount of prosthetic parts and then uh, an actor would come in and we would get uh, the first day I think we had 30 or 40 actors and we built um, a, a makeup on them from these parts so even though they hadn't been made to go on them they you know they fitted them because we pieced them together on that particular actor but we we put them together in a rotted form where their faces have fallen apart a lot and then the next day we took that off and we saved it we couldn't save the part around the eye or around the mouth so the right. next day we turned that mask as the base of a new character and we added more pieces of flesh and more things so that the one mm. guy played five different parts in the same scene with the same mask but it was a mask that was changing in every shot this was the first uh, shriveled that we filmed uh, and the one of them was meant as a pullover mask and it's not um, as good as the other one but they're long shots they're most you know it was meant to be background I really this was a throwaway idea of having uh, an excuse why the guy falls off the, to, for that flesh to come off his hand and that was a, a little throwaway piece that I did and I, I thought it worked really well it was kind of yeah, it was it was it, it kind of made you squirm when you watched it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it was. Uh, that was the way that we managed to um, uh, to put a, to to get a small number of uh, guys to put so many people on the streets. Uh, uh, only not not long before that, they did Thriller, and they literally had thirty zombies and thirty makeup artists. So for five of us, six of us to. Um, to do 170 was unheard of at that time. 
So best to get people who don't know what they're getting into to do it. Well, they were, yeah, but that, for that reason, they were open to, uh, to doing right. something that no one had done before, right? They didn't say, oh, but right. you can't yeah. do this. The problem was that we had to invent new glues to uh, make sure that we could actually get the prosthetics off without destroying them. And uh, I, I used actually gelatine to stick the eye pieces and the mouthpieces on so that they could pop off and we could get the rest of the mask off. Uh, because normally, once you've sealed it all on, the mouth, by the time you've ripped that off, it uh, you've, yeah, you've messed up the whole it. mask. So. Anyway, details, details. I wanted to talk a little bit about after Life Force. Now, it, you, this was a huge job for you, and then where, what direction did your career take after that? Actually, right after Life Force, there, was a, there wasn't a, a huge amount of work about, and I went off uh, to do a job in Hungary, um, which was a follow-up to Grizzly. Uh, that was about a 16-foot grizzly bear that uh, invades a rock concert. Uh, oh, yes, yes. It was the, I've heard many tales about this it was movie, the, yes. It was the first movie that... Uh, um, had Lorna Dern in it. It had uh, um, George Clooney. George Clooney was in it, and Charlie, Charlie Sheen. Sheen was in it. Exactly. I'm glad you're reminding me because I'm think I'm seeing all these faces and trying to remember. But you know, Charlie Sheen was very young at the time. We went. We spent uh, five months building the bear and the animatronics and all the other stuff. And then suddenly one day the picture folded. Just when we were about huh. to shoot all the miniatures, I was, I, oh. I was supposed to be directing all the miniatures on that, and then suddenly it stopped, and, um, and the movie just evaporated. So that was one of those moments that, uh, you know, that, that got lost. There were a couple of other things that happened. The, the most notable thing after that was, um, was Highlander, and that was always right. going to be a good movie. It was a great script. Uh, I'd worked with um, the director of that on uh, a Duran Duran video called Wild Boys that won the Grammy uh, that oh, year. Okay. Oh, yeah, Russell Mulcahy, yes. Yes, yes. exactly. And so uh, Russell asked me to do Highlander. But uh, the hours that I was doing on that were just too excessive, and uh, we were stretching to do more and more and more and more, and I got sick on the movie, and collapsed with exhaustion and and bob Keane had to finish the movie for me here we are back to uh um our 170 uh vampires <laughs> in the street um there were a number of fun things that we uh that we gigs that we pulled in here there's a there's a shot in here where one of the zombies gets shot in the head that is the little throwaway piece that we where we built a little animatronic dummy and and put a charge in its head and stuck it on a camera dolly. You'll 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 notice it in there along the way. Um, as we build towards the climax of this classic vampire, an energy vampire movie. What about the mail? She'll come if you senses I found her. She's drawing me, Kane. I've got to go. Did you look back at the original novel that the uh, Life Force was based on? No, I I, I looked at the script. Um, I mm. think the the I'm not quite sure where the 
uh, know where it was from, but the, uh, you know, or, or what the differences were. But the issue on that really is once the director's decided this is the version he's going to make, um, you, you can't really go back and, and rework it. That's for the guys who are working at the at the at, at the real concept stages when they're working on the scripts and and other stuff mm -hmm. when that obviously will be much more effective but there there was a script and uh that i originally read and then dan o'bannon came into the studio and while we were working um and and did a rework on it um and uh until we finally had the version that we that you see on screen did you have much interaction? Did you meet Dan O'Bannon? Yeah. Did you have an interaction? What was he like? What was Dan like? Uh, he was he was a nice, he was just a regular guy like you and me. He was uh, mm -hmm. uh, he was I, I liked him. We talked to, through some of the um, concepts uh, on that, and um, and then he went away and did his stuff. It was only uh, one or two conversations that I had with him, but uh, yeah, he was good. You know, sadly, Dan passed away a little while ago as well. There's quite a few people f from this movie that are no longer with us. I'm afraid that that's happening more and more. You know, we talk about uh, about Krull and uh, it was Derek Meddings that uh, that I was working mm -hmm. with largely on that, and uh, some of the people who were my you know my main uh, people the the main animatronics uh engineer that worked with me on this movie um uh, has passed away and, and we're getting to that point where we're all getting older i'm in my 60s now and i was the new kid on the block when we made star wars so uh People who were that extra generation, one generation away, Stuart and and the others, uh, you, you say, oh, they died, but they died in 94, 95, 96, mm. 98. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so, so many of the people that were doing and founding all of mm. these practical effects. Uh, we talked about Ray Harryhausen. He's, uh, I think, 94 now. This sequence that's coming up now uh, was a sequence that, again, uh, I wrote into the script with the arm mm -hmm. being pulled off because we were just trying to think of different gags that we could do to make this happen. So you have a um, a, a, a makeup a, a stuntman whose arm is strapped behind his back and an animatronic <laughs> arm that comes through the window that then uh, is being operated by radio control. Um, it, it's a fun kind of thing uh, that, uh, just a little throwaway item, but they, they all help to add a little more uh, depth. And those guys, those of us who, who make these things kind of right. get off on fun little things like that. So you, uh, what's interesting is when we were talking about, you know, the people who have left and you came into the business really right when, because well, so many of the studios back then had their own makeup effects departments and it was, a, it was the end of one type of an era of that, of that sort of, you know, everyone having their own in-house shops and then really Lucasfilm changed everything. Well, uh, that, that. Well, it wasn't really Lucasfilm. They, the movies were. We were all freelance before that. You, you're going back. 
really to times like uh, when Stu was young and he was at Denham Studio, you did have a makeup department that was a studio mm. makeup department. You could be working on four movies in the same day. Just a, a stream of people that were coming in, getting made up to, uh, you know, to do different things. Mm. That had already changed um, by the time I came in in the 60s. And I, I'm not sure where that... I think that really started to die away in the, in the 40s. But you used to have the same thing with actors that were signed to studios uh, and, um, and then were lent to other studios to, right. uh, to do that. It was all too expensive, and uh, the, uh, the accountants were the ones that came in and revolutionized everything. It wasn't... A, 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 the, if, you, if you look at it, actually, George Lucas starting ILM was going back towards true. that yeah. sort of system by having his own people to, to uh, develop those things. Uh, it, and it's hard for us. Uh, it was hard for us as people who were freelance to um, we didn't have the cash flow to be able to hire a crew of 70 people, keep them occupied between movies while we, while we developed um, new things. Uh, so it, it was, it was, you know, that actually did hold us back to some extent. Although uh, later on, uh, people like Stan Winston um, did did go and hire a you know a, a warehouse mm -hmm. and start to uh, keep a core crew together and uh, and build stuff up more and more and and more. He had his own little museum there. Unfortunately, Stan's not with us anymore either. Yeah, I know it's another sad loss. Yeah. So this is this is the Falada sequence where um, uh, there was an extension to this scene that was. Uh, that was cut out because it was too gory. But um, this makeup took a long time to to do. Um, the um, the actor was filming in the morning, and so he had to uh, come into me in the afternoon. And I wanted to do a makeup on him that, when you first see him here, it doesn't look so strange. Um, it's uh, you know it's a little weird, uh, but as you as you get to see him clearer and clearer, you suddenly realise that he's definitely not right, um, and then it starts to transform and move. And that is a that that was a, a makeup that was done by putting very thin skins uh, over his with bladders underneath. Uh, that would allow us to uh, to do it. This is the scene that he was filming in the morning before we put the rest of the makeup on. And by the time we had the makeup all on, um, uh, Tober decided he wanted to go home. And so I directed the end of the sequence. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that uh, um, he was too happy about it. This uh, this part of uh, of the face changing and blistering and moving um, at this point onwards was all the stuff that we'd done, and I really kind of based that on um, some of the work that Dick Smith had done some time before. The scene extended from this point where the well, this is obviously a dummy that's fallen down that's on fire. 
uh, and we had the dummy sit back up in where this continues we wanted him to sit up and the face melted and the eyes fell out and we we I, uh, it was pretty gruesome and i think it was the uh, i think it was the sensor that wouldn't allow us to do it and uh, include it in the final cut. did you have did you even film it oh yeah yeah we filmed it all These were inserts too. Um, we, uh, I, I shot that stuff uh, as well because uh, very often when you have something like that, you're running out of time. You shoot Colin Firth's reaction and it's the end of the day and then the next day my crew comes in and they say, okay, we want a shot of these, uh, all these uh, shriveled, uh, whatnot's coming and we want them to be all in detail so we can shoot them in close-up I mean you you don't really see in that scene um, it was cut so quickly you can't see all the contact lenses and all the right. other stuff that all the work that has gone into it but you can see it quite clearly in the stills we're going to have a sequence that's going to come up now where uh, we have the demise of uh, of Matilda, it was sad. Um, <laughs> this was something again that um, elements of it that uh, I shot, and I I devised a system here of uh, a shot here of us seeing the sword passing through the two of them, and obviously y you have um, the actors, but when we go into close-ups, uh, I I. Um, filmed it using gelatine pieces that were skinned so mm -hmm. that as, a, as the warm blade passed through the body, uh, it melted the gelatine and the blood ran out automatically. Oh, okay. And you see, so you see the sword going in the, and, the, and the blood running and the sword coming out again. That was all done as, uh, you know, as, as uh, inserts with my um, team. And in fact, I still have the, uh, the leaded... Uh, sword in my museum. Oh, do you really? Yeah. Are there any other pieces from this film that have survived over the years? Oh, yeah. At the end of the movie, um, it was suggested that uh, that they wanted to save money by selling all my stuff to my competitors just so that they could figure out how I'd done it. And so I bought uh, um, from them. I ended up having to buy from them the uh, the animatronics from this. So I have a lot of the stuff in the museum. Okay. Uh, of course, the skins have all died off and right. uh, and are not in great shape. But um, it's uh, yeah, that's still there. Well, your job was to get that stuff through filming, and that was it. It wasn't supposed to last forever, so. No, well, actually, that's the whole point. You make something to last as long as the camera turns over. Uh, people come in and they say, oh, do you have the original Yoda? Well, the original Yoda's in mushy pieces, mm -hmm. and uh, it is in, there are bits of it in private collections, but, um, but it just looks like a gooey mess. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the version that ends up with the Smithsonian is stuff that was taken out of the molds, but not the originals that you saw on screen. Right. And so, uh, and that's the same with with all of that. Oh, we just—I just took through the bit where we shot the guy in the head. 
uh, that I was telling you about earlier. Yeah. It was a good shot. It was a good headshot. Yeah, right. This was really a very... Um, I thought all of this sequence worked uh, really well. You know, this does look like the London Underground, and we built it all out in the, uh, in the back lot. Uh, the only underground shot is the one that you're going to see now, where it goes, this, is, this shot here is actually in the London an Underground, oh, okay. uh, where they went and closed down a station for a night and filmed it. Uh, but the exteriors are all, um, and the bus and all of that stuff, that's all live practical effects done on the back lot. And uh, exactly what we're talking about, the marriage of stuff between these physical effects that John Gant is doing, the creature effects that I've got running around, and all of the optical effects that, uh, that uh, John Dykstra was doing to the, that, that really increased the scope of what you're seeing. Um, uh, but you put it all together and it all becomes one. And uh, it was... Uh, I, I really felt that um, when I saw the movie, I really felt that our, our effects really were cutting edge for its time. Now, this is a, a another sequence that I, I devised and filmed the, uh, an the animatronic bat and actually uh, right next to us Jim Henson was filming um, Return to Oz and while I was filming this, this section you're about to see he came in and uh, talked to me about going to work on, on that movie uh, we filmed it as a half sized bat uh, using a false perspective so that the bat looks like it's six feet tall, but it's actually three foot tall. But even at three foot tall, it had an eight foot wingspan. And the, uh, the animatronic movement that we get out of that, um, I was particularly pleased with, it's starting now. Mm -hmm. And the wings actually move in a very uh, realistic kind of fashion, the movement in the head and the back and the necks. Uh, and the way the wings twist as they move, um, I, I was particularly pleased with. What I really like about the vampires in this movie is that you never get a, a really good handle on what their natural form is. They've, they've been, they're just, they're very otherworldly. They're not like any other vampires we've seen in, in other films. No, I when I um, there, there were there were two variations on the bats. Some that were built by the props department for the inside of the spaceship, and the animatronic version that I that I did there. When when I was doing mine, I, I actually owned a rhinoceros iguana and and a lot of other exotic animals, and I wanted to get the the organic uh, zoological flavor of that. Uh, and the realism of that into the piece, and yet at the same time have a bat reference without it being a classic, oh, it's a squeaky bat face. Mm -hmm. So we did something that was reptilian and bat-like uh, as a combination, and, um, and I thought that it, it worked pretty well. This is the um, sequence I was telling you about where we have the sword going through the two of them, so you'll... You'll get to see that too. 
It was a it was an interesting movie that crossed a lot of different bounds, and I think that Tobe was unfairly criticised for uh, for it at the time um, when people thought that it was just too sexual and and uh, I think the people in the states thought it had too many Brits in it, and uh, <laughs> and and the people that were in. Uh, uh, that were in England, it was just too sexy for them to handle. So uh, it's since become a cult. I can't tell you how many people come through my museum and tell me how much they love this movie. And oh, really? Occasionally, I get oh. posters. There she goes. Oh, yeah. there coming. Yeah. Quick little shots, but they're effective. Very effective. One thing that uh, it's, it's really nice to be able to talk to you about after all these years is just identifying, because, you know, for so many years, you when you, you see the video box or the, you know, you watch the summary of the movie on TV Guide or something, John Dykstra's name gets mentioned an awful lot, uh, obviously because he was very famous after coming off of Star Wars. It, now seeing that there's really quite an amazing collaboration between not only you and him and John Gant as well, uh, just to get an idea of... It wasn't just all the visual effects. There was optical effects, makeup effects, practical effects. It, it was, was a, a great. It was a great marriage of effects here. Really, John Dykstra's work was uh, was excellent on this movie, and it really deserved um, to be praised in uh, all of those ways. But so often, what happens when something gets to be a box set? Someone picks up a piece of. Uh, a, a, a press article that someone wrote about John doing those effects and, and that gets transformed into whatever's written on the outside of a box. So yes, right. there was a lot of stuff there that gave uh, John a lot of credit and John, John doesn't need our credits because he's got a lot of his own. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, th I think that John Gant particularly um, didn't get mentioned very much and his physical effects all the way through this movie were, were, were top rate. Um, I think my, my creature effects pretty well speak for themselves mm -hmm. um, in this particular movie. As I've said, I think it was the best movie. I think my effects in this movie were probably the best ones that I made. Unfortunately, I don't think it was the best movie that I made, but, uh, but that's okay. I, I think that the creatures and things that I built in some of the other movies that were more popular um, weren't as sophisticated. I, you can do uh, brilliant work on something. Uh, special effects don't make a movie. It's the drama that makes the movie. If the movie's good, then the special effects enhance it. If the movie's bad, the special effects aren't going to save it. So where, where, where are you in your career now? What have you been doing since you... I mean, there was a period where you, you, you did sort of leave the industry for a while. Yeah, well, I've been... Uh, I, I decided that uh, I'd made 53 movies and 54 didn't really make a difference. Um, and, uh, and so I took a little time off going sailing around the Caribbean and I... Uh, I had a phase where I was doing paintings and hanging them in museums. Uh, then um, I started a little uh, movie museum here in St. Martin where I try to, it's a non-profit foundation where I'm trying to encourage kids to follow their dreams and be all they can be and not settle for less just because other people mm -hmm. think that's normal. 
After all, you can't be normal and exceptional no. at the same time. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've also, I'm also developing a, a couple of um, entertainment projects that um, we're in negotiations about at the moment that might quite possibly come to nothing at all. Um, but we're trying to, uh, to launch a, a, a completely new form of entertainment that is a cross between live action and uh, movie mm. effects. Um, uh, which you'll either know about in another five years or or will be a, a, another project that moves on. But I think life needs to be a series of events. You, you can spend your whole life doing the same thing or you can move from one thing to another. My movie career was fun because I started as a makeup artist and I went through different stages as I directed different things. Now I'm hoping to move that into another area altogether. Well, Nick, thank you very much for your time. This was great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it.